everybody? How are y'all doing? You guys are an easy group to preach to. That's, that's just a fact. But I will tell you this before I start. I'm used to a handheld mic, and now i got all this range of mobility. So it's about to get biblical up in here. So I'm up here today because I'm a preacher, I guess you could say. I'm a campus minister is what I consider myself. But what I'm going to talk about, I'm not just saying this stuff because I have to preach. I'm not making this stuff up um, or blowing hot air, as I say. I actually believe this stuff. And what I'm going to talk about today is, hey, bada boom, bada bing. (laughs) What I'm going to talk about today is um, the death and burial of Jesus. And like I said, this stuff... It's still relevant. I work at a campus ministry and I'm seeing adults be baptized, come to faith in Christ. This stuff still works. The story of Jesus is still relevant. It's still changing lives. It's changing lives here in Mineral and it's changing lives across the world. So I figured there's nothing else I'd like to talk about other than the story of Jesus today. So we're going to be in Matthew 27 and we're going to read the entire chapter. Just deal with it. I'm just going to say that. And then we'll dive into it. So in Matthew 27, I'll be reading from the NIV. If you don't have your Bible here this morning, that's okay. We're just really glad that you guys are here. Um, But I'm going to kick us off and read this entire chapter. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. He went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field, as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered from a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. 
Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar, uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from, that, from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Or as he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing there heard this. They said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' after Jesus's resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this man was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of the Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So that's a lot. We read a lot of scripture there. But I don't really have anything good to say to you guys this morning. All I know to do with my life, with this sermon, with all my actions is to point to Jesus. That's all I know to do. So that's what I want to do this morning is just continually point you back to Jesus and just try to glean some wisdom from this word of God that's still changing lives in 2015. So we're going to break this down into some chunks. The first one we're going to look at is when Judas hangs himself. And so verses 6 through 9, isn't it crazy how corrupt these Pharisees were? They had literally just ruined this guy's life. They had told Judas, like, we're going to give you 30 pieces of silver, man. We just need you to hand Jesus over to us. And so he does. And Jesus, or Judas, overcome by this deep remorse, this intense feeling of guilt, he's like, I can't do this. And he, he throws the money back into the, the temple. And you're thinking these religious leaders, the most religious people of the entire, you know, of that time of the entire world, they're like, well, how can we use this money? How can we go around this? And like, well, we'll just buy a potter's field and use it as a burial place. We've got to use this money somehow. Isn't that twisted and sick? So I know Eddie was up here singing my praises, but I'm about to tell you guys how big of a scoundrel I am. Um, Rachel and I were in Walmart, I guess it was about a month ago. And so I hate going to Walmart. I hate shopping. So we're in there and... I don't know what I was buying, like some eggs and stuff. I don't know. I usually don't have a game plan, so I'm like, yeah, eggs. I eat eggs. I'll get eggs. And so we're walking around. I'm not enjoying myself. And there's like, you know, they're coming over the loudspeaker like, and I'm like, what is, what is happening here? And so we walk out into the middle aisle, and they're talking about severe thunderstorm warning or something like that, and they're wanting people to go to the back, like into the stock room to be safe. And so I was like, well, let's just get the heck out of here, Rachel. We ain't going to the stock room. And so, like, we were walking up there, and they sealed the hatch. I mean, the cabin was pressurized. We weren't getting out of there. <laughs> so they sealed the hatch, and they heard us, like, sheep back into this stock room, and there's boxes everywhere and everything. And so I'm back there, and, you know, Rachel, as a responsible, mature adult would be, is calling people, and she's concerned for other safety, those sort of proper actions. And I'm back there. I'm like looking around, I'm like, that gum. I could steal just about anything I wanted back here. <laughs> I'm like, that's a freaking flat screen TV. Can I fit it in my shirt? <laughs> and so I'm back there and I'm looking at all this stuff and then they give us the green light, everything was fine, no big deal. So we're walking towards the front and like the alarm starts going off and I was like, what the heck is that? So like, you know, ding, 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 all going off like, you know, someone won the lottery and we figured out it was people stealing stuff. They're like sprinting out the door, you know, like stealing all this stuff. And Rachel, again, the responsible one, 
she's like, can you believe these people? Like, at a time like this, they're stealing stuff. And I was like, I, I know, honey, it's, it's sad. Society is going to crap. <laughs> so I had those thoughts in my mind. And we all have these kind of thoughts. But have you ever had those in your mind? Like, you know, it, for me, it's if Rachel really knew what I was thinking, if Rachel really knew who I was deep down, would she still love me? You guys had those thoughts? You know, if someone really were to step inside my mind, would they still love me? I don't know. I can't speak for Rachel. Um, but, but if you've ever thought that, if you've ever thought, if someone really knew me, if they knew the things that I did, would they still love me? Would God still love me? Well, this is the lesson for you. I want you to listen up today. Just give me 20 short minutes and... and uh, think God will really do something with this word. So we're moving down to the next section when Jesus is before Pilate. And I want you to put on your kind of your college thinking cap. If you still got it, dust it off. Because we're going to do a little bit of literary criticism. We're going to look at, you know, these writers. They spent this time with Jesus. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. And he was trying to tell us something in this section. And I want you guys to notice the use of irony. Um, particularly in verses 11 through 26. So they asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he's basically like, you said it, not me. But then he goes silent. You have the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, stand before this country bumpkin, little Roman official, and he submits to him. He doesn't say anything. He submits. What else? Then you have Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this this real scoundrel, this murderer. And he is released above Jesus. It's not Jesus, the one who's totally innocent that gets set free. It's Barabbas. He's the one who gets set free. And then who's arguing for Jesus' innocence? It's not any of his disciples, but it's Pilate and his wife. These two Gentiles, they're arguing, no, guys, this guy hasn't done anything. But the most religious people of the day, which is scary for people like us, the most religious people of the day were the ones shouting, crucify. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then if this doesn't give you chills, I don't know what will. Verse 25, they were so mad, they had gotten so worked up that they said, let his blood be on us and our children. Can you imagine getting to that place in your life where you're so mad at someone, you're yelling to kill them and say, don't worry about it. If we're wrong, let his blood be on us and our children. And that's, that's pretty intense. That's pretty rough. So we're going to move down even more into the crucifixion of Jesus. So right now, I know this is a little bit hokey, but I want you guys to close your eyes. Close your eyes and kind of walk through, and what do you think about during the crucifixion of Jesus? What is happening to Jesus? You see, this is something that gets lost in our culture. You can open your eyes. Unless you're asleep, then I guess enjoy your nap. 
Something that's lost in our culture is this idea of shame and honor. We don't really get this. We do to some, some degree. Um, but this was, this was how the, their culture ran. It was based on shame and honor. And honor is not an unlimited resource. It's a very limited resource. So when you have these Pharisees or religious officials coming to test Jesus, they come up and ask him questions. Um, that's not just because they're wanting to answer. They're challenging Jesus. They're trying to humiliate him in front of his friends. And so when they ask him questions and he kind of punks them, then he's gained more honor and they've lost honor. And that's how the entire um, culture was run. And also when you see Jesus' family and they come and they're like, you know, Jesus is going crazy. He thinks he's a Messiah. Let's go get him. That's because he was bringing shame on their family by saying these things. It was all the shame and honor. So whenever you think about the crucifixion, I would imagine most of you think of the physical abuse that Jesus went through. Well, I just want to read to you guys the physical abuse that Jesus endured and then the emotional and shame that he went through. And I just wrote these down, reading through uh, Matthew 27, and this is what it come up with. So this is just the physical abuse. The physical, it says, they had him flogged. They set a crown of thorns on his head. They struck him on the head again and again. And then the account of the crucifixion just says, when they had crucified him. And that's it. That's all it says about the physical abuse of Jesus Christ. But the shame, just listen to this. It said they had stripped him in front of everyone. They stripped a robe and a, they gave him a robe and a crown and a staff. They knelt down in front of him and mocked him. They spit on him. Again, I wouldn't put that in a physical category because technically it doesn't really hurt you. It just makes you look terrible. It's humiliating. They mocked him. They gambled for his clothes. They put a sign above his head. The people passing by hurled insults. They shook their heads and said, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, go ahead and save yourself, son of God. The religious leaders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself, and jokingly called him the king of Israel, saying if he would come down from the cross, they would believe. The religious leaders said that he trusts in God and let God rescue him if he wants him. And finally, even the criminals beside him, they, they were even heaping insults on him. So, I understand here in America, we want to fight for something. It's kind of in our DNA. We want to stand up. We want to fight for what's right. But to me, this account, and I look through all the Gospels, it's heavily emphasizing this humiliation, this shame that Jesus Christ went through on the cross. And I think that's so relevant for us here in America. We talk a lot about persecution, but we're really not persecuted here in America. We're really not. For us, persecution is looking silly in front of your friends when you want to pray at a restaurant before you have your meal. For us, persecution is bringing up that you have faith in Jesus Christ to someone you don't know. So to me, this, this makes so much sense and is so relevant to us in our lives. About picking up your cross, I think for us it's not necessarily picking up your cross in a physical abuse sort of way, in a persecuting physically but for us, picking up our cross is acknowledging Jesus Christ in all our ways in front of everyone. And I think that comes out so clearly if you just look through the Gospels and their explanation of Jesus being crucified. So we're going to move down into the death of Jesus. 
So it says darkness came over the whole land for three hours. And you're like, what? It got dark for three hours when Jesus died. And then this gets a little bit thorny. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a few different ways that you can interpret this. Some scholars say that Jesus, that God actually turned his back on Jesus. And there's some scholars that just can't go there. They said there's no way that God would ever turn his back on Jesus, so he just felt like he was forsaken. To me, I don't really think it matters so much. It's very, uh, it's an important thing to look at and observe, but in that moment, Jesus Christ felt like the God of the universe had turned his back on him. And I think that is so important for us. I know there's times when you feel like God turns his back on you. Well, the Son of Man felt the exact same way. And he even shouted a psalm about it while he was hanging on the cross. After this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And we could spend an entire day talking about the curtain of the temple um, being torn in two. How monumental that, that moment was. You see, in the, in the court, the Israelites' court in the, the palace, I mean the, the temple, I'm sorry, there was like, you could think about these rings getting closer and closer to the center of the temple. And that's where the presence of God was. So in the outer ring, the outer court, it was the court of the Gentiles. So you have the court of the Gentiles, and just like it says, any Gentile could come in, and the Israelites could come in, mix and mingle, and spend time there. Well, then there was a little bit closer ring. And in that ring was the court of women. So only Israelite women could go into that next step. Or I guess everybody except for Gentiles could go into that next step. But the the women could get a little bit closer. Getting even closer to the most holy of holies, which is the center of the temple, one more step in is the court of the Israelites. So the Israelite women couldn't go any further, but the Israelite men and the priests could. Getting even closer into that is the court of the priests. So only the priests could come into this circle. It's pretty close to the center of the temple. But then there was, only, there was one more place, the center of the temple. It's where the Jews literally believed the presence of God was held. You can kind of think about um, the Ark of the Covenant. That was this room, the most holy of holies. And one priest, the high priest, could only go into this room one day a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. And they considered this room so holy that they would tie a rope onto the high priest's ankle. So he would go in and do his business. And then if he were to die, they had that rope so they could drag him out because no one else could go in there. That's how crazy, how intense the most holy of holies is. In between the most holy of holies and the court where the other priests could come was that, that curtain. So when it says that the curtain was torn in two, it means the presence of God flooded out for all of us to have access to. I know that sounds really complex, but whereas one guy could go in and have access to the presence of God one time a year, now all we have to do is get down on our knees and pray to the God of the universe. We all have access to the throne of God. All we have to do is talk to Him. Again, we could talk about this for a really long time, how monumental that is. 
but we just don't have time. And uh, I just want you guys to realize when the curtain was torn into how, how important that was, how incredible of a moment that is, that we all have access, we can all talk to God anytime that we want. Um, again, in verse 52 and 53, it says that the, the holy people were resurrected and they started walking around the city. I've never heard that. You're like, what? Holy people are resurrected, they're walking around the city? Um, and then finally it was a centurion. It wasn't a Jew, it wasn't an Israelite, it wasn't a priest, but it was this centurion, this Gentile man that professes Jesus as the Son of God. That's pretty incredible. Um, something, something to think about. I want to encourage you guys as we look at the burial of Jesus. If you're kind of exploring this Christianity thing, you're on the fence about it, um, you have some doubts, again, I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature. I would encourage you to explore uh, the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus wasn't raised, if Jesus didn't get up and walk out of that tomb, then Christianity is null and void. There's no reason to believe in Christ. There's no reason to be a Christian. If Jesus didn't walk out of that tomb, then we're all here for nothing. So I would, I would encourage you to look at things like what Matthew's writing here. Again, he's a guy who walked with Jesus, observed his life, but he's trying to convince us of something. He's trying to tell us about Jesus and say that this stuff is true. And so he puts things in here like they, they put extra security measures at the tomb. They had the, the tomb sealed. Um, they had an extra guard there. He's saying this because this is evidence for believing. You can believe that Jesus did die, he did go in that tomb, and then later Matthew's going to tell you he arose and walked out. So I want you guys, if, if you are exploring Christianity, if you're not quite convinced that this stuff is real, start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if that happened, then you can work backwards and forwards. But if that didn't happen, it doesn't matter how the earth was created. It doesn't matter how it's going to end. Because Jesus is the only thing you need to center your faith on. If you are reading the book of Matthew, I know we picked up here Matthew 27. But if you're reading the book of Matthew, it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, a few days before this, Jesus was in the... He was in the temple. He was confronting the religious leaders of the day. Um, a few weeks before this, he was traveling the countryside, healing people, celebrating with people, teaching about the coming kingdom of God. But now this. He was crucified. Jesus Christ led a perfect life. And look what they did to him. Jesus Christ had absolutely no sin in his life. And we hung him on a tree until he died. So what I think this means for us is, we've got this idea in Christianity, if we do the right things, then good things will happen to us. Does that make sense? If we are a good Christian woman, if we are a good Christian man, then good things are going to happen to us. I'm just not seeing it. I would love for the world to work that way. You do what you're supposed to, and you get what you're supposed to get. But that's not how it works. That's not how life works. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and he hung on a tree until he died. There's a guy who, who's kind of coined this as Christian karma. 
if I do all the right things, all the right things are going to happen to me. But guys, I'm, I'm not seeing that. That's not a biblical idea. The Son of Man, the Creator of the universe, God in the flesh, came here, and He was beaten, He was shamed, He lost all His friends, His disciples, and He died. We killed Him. What's crazy is the opposite is also true. Because of Jesus Christ, you can do terrible things and your life's not over. It's not over because of this thing called grace. Like I was talking about earlier, if I got what I really deserved, it would be death. It would be something like Jesus suffered. But I don't have to endure that because of Jesus Christ. There's this movie called Facing the Giants. Can I get a show of hands who's seen Facing the Giants? Okay, so some of you may know this reference. This is a movie about a guy who, he gets this crappy football team, his wife can't get pregnant, he's like making no money, and he starts following Jesus, and then all of a sudden, this crappy football team, like they become studs, they win the state championship, um, he gets a bump in pay, he gets a new truck, and then at the end of the movie, his wife's like, I'm also pregnant. And it's like, it's crazy, man. It's just like this ridiculous idea that as soon as you start following Jesus, your life's going to get a whole lot easier. And I just don't see it, y'all. I think tied in with this, this idea of Christian karma, um, we can really look at two examples of the opposite side, of this guilt and remorse for doing things wrong, for doing bad things, I guess you would say, sinning against God. And to me... This plays out so perfectly with with Peter and with Judas. If we look at the stories of Peter and Judas, essentially they did the same thing. They betrayed Jesus in one capacity or the other. So what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to have this, this hollow guilt, this hollow remorse. So Judas betrays Jesus, and it says he's overcome with remorse. This hollow guilt that just leads to you feeling terrible about your actions. It totally immobilizes you, takes you out of play in the kingdom of God. So Judas, he's overcome with this remorse, so much so that he literally takes himself out of the game. He gives up his life. He hangs himself. But if we look at what I think God is freeing us from and the true definition of repentance, see, Jesus... And the Bible's definition of repentance is not this hollow shame. It's, it literally means to change your mind. So you look at Peter. He essentially does the same thing. He denies Christ three times. He falls away. But then what happens? Jesus comes and he reinitiates Peter. But then Peter doesn't sit there harping on it his entire life. He doesn't take himself out of the game. He doesn't think, well, remember, I, I can't be a preacher. I can't go talk to people about you, Christ. Remember that one time that I, I fudged up? You remember that one time I messed up? He doesn't say that. He gets back in the game, and what does he do? Peter goes, and he delivers the first gospel message ever preached to the same people who were crucifying Jesus. You guys ever notice that? He's preaching to the same people that were shouting crucify. 
This guy that left him talking to a crowd of people who already said, let's crucify Jesus. He said, you got it wrong. So he preaches this gospel sermon, and then all the people say, what do we got to do? We've repented. We've changed our mind. It wasn't this hollow guilt where they came in, they said, "We, we killed the Savior of the universe. Why, why should we even live more? No. They said, what, what, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent. Change your mind and be baptized. I don't know what you guys are dealing with in your life. I really don't. I would imagine in a crowd this size um, runs the full gambit of things that you've done, things that you're harboring guilt about, but I want to free you from that today. Jesus Christ has freed you from that today. I don't want you to take yourself out of the game like Judas. I don't want you to sideline yourself because God is calling you to work in His kingdom. He isn't calling us Christians to sit around and and do nothing waiting for heaven to come. He wants us to be bringing heaven to earth. And so He needs all of you working in His kingdom. And so I want to free you from this this hollow guilt, remorse that you you do to yourself. And I want you to forgive yourself because Christ has first forgiven you And I want you to get back in the game. I want you to repent. The true biblical definition of repent. To change your mind. And doing so, change your actions. I love you guys very much. Um, I don't know what your need is this morning. If you need to confess something, you need to talk to a friend, you can do that. You can talk to one of the elders. Um, But I want you guys to be free from this hollow guilt and remorse. Um, And I want to say to you what Jesus said to everyone. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Please come as we uh, stand together and sing.